Good evening. Welcome to Donnell Edwards' Viewpoint. Your program with nationally recognized guests who are experts in their fields discussing today's most pressing issues and where your viewpoints matter. So call with your question or comments about this week's topic or whatever else may be of concern to you. Just call Darnell at 563-999-3660 to share your viewpoint. Now, with this week's guest, here's your viewpoint host, Darnell Edwards. Good evening, good evening, and welcome to Donnell Edwards' Viewpoints, and I am your host, Donnell Edwards. We thank you for joining us for tonight's special Women's History Month program, Women Making History Yesterday and Today. As you probably already know, we at the CWR Talk Network are celebrating Women's History Month, and we're proud to present a series of short vignettes about the women who were pioneers in the fight for women's rights, some of which you will hear on this program this evening, and others who are representative of the phenomenal contributions women have made in all areas of society. Please join us in saluting the contributions of women to our world as we honor all of the great ladies throughout history. Right now, we're going to take a short break, and when we return, we will discuss with our special guest the struggles of women throughout history the outstanding achievements of women, and the major challenges facing women today. So stay tuned, and we will be right back in just a few minutes. You're listening to the CWR Talk Network. America's Voice for Causes, Issues, and Life Empowerment. This is the CWR Talk Network, hashtag one million strong. Dave, what are you doing? Just sending a gift to Dave2037. Who? Me in the future. I save a little money from every paycheck as a gift to Dave2037, so he can spend it on things like anti-gravity boots or a hologram Doberman, something cool like that. I think Dave2037 deserves it. He worked hard. What are you getting Steve 2037? I guess I was thinking Steve 2037 would just fend for himself. Well, all right. But don't expect to be borrowing my anti-gravity boots. You want to have money in your future? You got to start saving now. Putting some money from every paycheck into a savings account or contributing to your 401k can make a big difference later. Put away a few bucks, feel like a million bucks. For free ideas and easy ways to save, go to feedthepig.org. That's feedthepig.org. Hey, let's just hope Steve2037 doesn't get his hands on a cool time machine, because he is going to come back here and knock some sense into you. This message brought to you by the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants and the Ad Council. Meet the black female NASA genius who helped send the first American into space. Don't know Katherine Johnson? Well, she was the black mathematician behind the U.S.'s first trips to the moon. And she made her mark as a black woman despite working in the Jim Crow South during the 1960s. Johnson, who was born in the tiny town of White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia in 1918, was kind of a total whiz kid, and she loved to count. She skipped grades and started high school at the age of 10, which is pretty astounding in its own right. But it's even more amazing considering that schooling for black students in those days typically ended at the eighth grade. Johnson later went to college to study math before graduating at, get this, 18. 
She went on to be a teacher and later a stay-at-home mom before landing a position at the newly launched NACA, or as we now know it, NASA, at the Langley Research Center in 1953. She was hired to be a human computer. Women were hired by NASA to count and measure the results of wind tunnel tests. Not only did female computers work separately from their male co-workers, but the female offices were further segregated by color. Black female computers worked in separate rooms from the white female computers, and were even sometimes referred to as colored computers. But Johnson Smarts couldn't be denied. She was transferred to NASA's flight branch after only having worked there for two weeks. There, Johnson wound up calculating the trajectory for Alan Shepard's 1961 mission. It was the first time an American had been to space, and Johnson made sure NASA got it right. Johnson also helped guide the Apollo missions to the moon and was still vital to NASA long after it finally started using quote-unquote real computers. John Glenn, one of NASA's pioneering astronauts, trusted her work so much that he personally requested she recheck calculations from the electronic computers. Though it's pretty clear that Johnson was critical to NASA's first space voyages, Johnson is still only just getting the recognition she rightfully deserved. She's received numerous awards and was even given the Presidential Medal of Freedom from President Barack Obama in 2015. About Time, a biopic, Hidden Figures, about Johnson and her black female colleagues at NASA is also in the works. The movie stars Taraji P. Henson as Johnson and is slated for release in 2017. It also stars Octavia Spencer as Dorothy Vaughn, Johnson's supervisor and genius programmer and coder at NASA for 28 years. R&B artist Janelle Monet is also tied to the project as Mary Jackson. Jackson was not only one of the badass female computers alongside Johnson and Vaughn at that time, but was also a trailblazer in women's rights. She educated black women in her field on how to advance in their careers from mathematicians to engineers and land positions that were normally never offered. Though the release of Hidden Figures is still a while off, it's receiving huge attention from some well-known names. Pharrell Williams jumped on board as not only a producer, but also the movie's music man. He's written songs for the movie and is even collaborating with Hans Zimmer on the score. Johnson is now retired from spaceships and astronauts. She'll be celebrating her 98th birthday on August 26th, which, coincidentally, is also Women's Equality Day. Share if you think Katherine Johnson's story needs to be heard. You're listening to the CWR Talk Network, America's voice for causes, issues, and life empowerment. This is the CWR Talk Network, hashtag one million strong. If you just joined us for this very special Women's History Month edition of Donnell Edwards Viewpoints, our topic tonight is Women Making History Yesterday and Today. And our special guest is author, historian, and distinguished associate professor of history at Cornell University, Dr. Judith Byfield. She is a core faculty member of the Department of History, Feminist, Gender, and Sexuality Studies, and a member of the Africana Studies field. She is the author of the forthcoming book, A Great Upheaval, Women, Taxes, and Nationalist Politics in Nigeria, 1945 to 1951, and The Bluest Hands, A Social and Economic History of Women Indigo Dyers in Western Nigeria, 1890 to 1940. She has also co-edited several books, including Global Africa with Dorsey Hodgson, Africa and World War II with Carolyn Brown, Timothy Parsons, and I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, Ahmad Sakanga, and Gendering the African Diaspora, 
Women, Culture, and Historical Change in the Caribbean and Nigerian Hinterland with Lorraine Benzer and Anthea Morrison. She has also published articles in uh, edited volumes and journals such as Canadian Journal of African Studies, Journal of African History, uh, Meridians, a journal on feminism, race, and transnationalism, and Palimpsest, a journal on women, gender, and the Black International. Beyond publications, Dr. Byfield contributes to the field through service on editorial and advisory committees. Dr. Byfield has also served on numerous organizational capacities as well. She was co-chair of the program committee for the 17th Berkshire Conference on the History of Women, Genders, and Sexualities, and she is former president of the African Studies Association, as well as chair of the Association of African Studies Programs. Please join me in welcoming to the CWR Talk Network and Donald Edwards' viewpoints, author, historian, and associate professor of history at Cornell University, Dr. Judith Byfield. Welcome, Dr. Byfield. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. You're very welcome. Uh, can you share with us how your research got started and what you hope to accomplish? Um, I started grad school with an interest in um, women, particularly women in the nationalist movement. And some of that was due to the time that I was in college. Um, so I was in college in the mid-'70s, and the college I attended um, had only had recently gone co-ed. In fact, the first co-ed class graduated the year that I started. And um, there was a quota in place, um, so there were three men to every woman. And so um, gender studies was something that immediately caught my attention. Um, and so I continued that in grad school and eventually ended up for my master's, write in a biographical profile of Fumilia Ransom Kuti, who um, was probably the most important um, feminist nationalist women's activist in Nigeria during the height of the nationalist period. Um, and she's the mother of Fela Kuti. And some people may have seen the play Fela that was on Broadway. So that okay. really um, launched me into all of this. Okay, very good. Now, I'm interested in learning about some of your books. Several titles really piqued my interest. For example, Cross Currents, Building Bridges Across American and Nigerian Studies. What will readers learn from uh, reading this book? Yes, um, this is an edited volume, and it's um, a compilation of papers that were developed um, during a, um, or for a program that I had set up. Um, I was at Dartmouth College and had been going back and forth to Nigeria where I'm attached to the University of Ibadan. And I attended an American Studies of Nigeria Association while I was there. And um, so there was an interest in American Studies in Nigeria already. Um, and so it was out of that that 
conversations with others um, led to the idea of starting a faculty exchange program. So Dartmouth's faculty went to Nigeria, um, to University of Ibadan, and they visited several other universities while they were there. They um, met with students, particularly graduate students, and gave public lectures. Um, they also had a small fund to purchase books that were key books in their field that they then donated to the library at University of Ibadan. And then um, Ibadan professors came to Dartmouth and did a similar thing, met with students, um, gave public lectures, had interactions with faculty. And so the papers in that collection then cover a range of different issues. One um, theme that connected a lot of them was that Nigeria borrowed the, modeled their political system on the U.S. And so I thought it was really important for American scholars, and politi particularly political scientists, to really engage some of the literature being produced in Nigeria because there's this sense that, well, America has accomplished democracy. Um, and this sort of sense that it's, you know, it's just a one-time thing that you do and then you move on from there. And so even though America is an older democracy than Nigeria, um, by looking at the two cases, you really see that it's an ongoing process. Um, and as we're learning very much in this contemporary period, even some of the ways in which um, the civil rights struggle, the women's movement, and all were able to expand democracy in this country, that all those things that, um, those accomplishments we thought, you know, were sort of embedded in stone then, we're now seeing all these efforts to undo them. So, you know, being able to look at how um, just democratic practice um, varies in Nigeria and, and sort of be able to compare and contrast it with the U.S. is one of the important things I think we need to do. Um, a couple of other issues that made it important, um, one had to do with the migration, because we were already beginning to see, by the time this collection was put together, a significant increase in the number of Africans coming to the U.S., um, and within that, specifically Nigerians. And there needed to be greater engagement between scholars of um, Nigeria and scholars of the U.S. because the Nigerians in the U.S. sort of fell you know, beneath the cracks, um, people who were studying night, um, migration to the U.S. Um, tended to focus on other populations, so very little work was being done on understanding the African broadly, but specifically the Nigerian communities, and the impact that they were having in different parts of the U.S. Um, and in the same way, scholars of Nigeria need to understand how those Nigerians in the U.S. were um, contributing to a series of changes to important political questions, but also contributing to the Nigerian economy through remittances. And since there are very few scholars who are you know, equally versed in American history and Nigerian history, um, this whole um, volume was a way to really help point out those places where we needed to bring scholars 
of these two locations together. Uh, you know, it's really interesting that, that you mentioned uh, some of the misconceptions that we have here in, in, in this country about our, our democracy and uh, the importance of understanding the African history and African culture. And one of the questions I wanted to ask you is mm -hmm. uh, we really don't do as well of a job as we should in teaching uh, black history or African-American history here in the United States. Uh, so what would uh, a student or anyone for that matter gain from studying African history or Nigerian history? Um, well, that's the last thing. This would take a whole semester. You <laughs> don't have quite um, that long. <laughs> Do your best. <laughs> yeah, so um, couple a couple of important things that, um, and certainly I'm thinking of some of the things I do, say, for example, when I teach my pre-colonial survey. Um, one that I try to get across to students is, you know, how old um, different African societies are, certain political institutions and practices, social institutions, Africa's connections to other parts of the world. So um, I sometimes we'll point out things that, you know, people, our contemporaries today will say. And um, I remember there was a particular U.S. president um, who went to South Africa and in, in the 1990s and, you know, gave this speech where he said, you know, one of the things we have to do is to bring Africa into the 21st century. And <laughs> so those of us who do African history were, you know, we were just beside ourselves bring Africa into the 21st century? You know, when has Africa not been a part of world <laughs> history? And so, you know, one of the things you can get students to do is to, through examples from the continent, actually begin to explore some of those questions that seem only pertinent to modern society. So, for example, questions of, well, how do you organize it? How do you um, address issues of inequality within states? What are the different ways in which people try to resist and reject um, sort of the powerful in their societies at different points in time? Um, one of the examples that would be really important, but you know, again, there are very few people who can sort of do this. If you think of, so, you know, most people in European history and American history talk about the age of revolutions, and they're talking about the end of the 18th century. Well, there were, you can argue that there was an age of revolutions also happening in West Africa in that same period. There are a number of sort of jihads that were happening in West Africa, and it's out of one of those jihads, in fact, that you got the creation of the Sokoto Caliphate in northern Nigeria. And this was a movement that was supported by both Muslims and non-Muslims because it was a, a resistance movement to the way in which the house estates had been organized at that time. Um, Similarly, you know, you can talk about economic connections and trade. So Africa has been you know, part of trade both to Europe across the Mediterranean, but also to um, India and, and China 
going back centuries. <clears throat> Sorry. So that when you want to talk about, you know, the development of sort of economic models of scale, um, even the development of currencies and all, those things are not unique to Europe. And in fact, as European traders came to Africa, those were some of the things that they had to learn. One of the ways in which they were able to establish economic relationships in Africa were, in fact, um, was in fact by integrating themselves into existing trade networks. They didn't create them from scratch. They came along and said, "Oh, okay, these are the people who are selling A, and you know the people further up the coast mm -hmm. here want items." And then the people who want A have B, which the people who have who were selling A wanted, so that the Portuguese insinuated themselves into those pre-existing trade networks. They didn't create them. Okay. So they Very would good. get a much deeper and organic understanding of world history and certainly world economic history by understanding African history. Great, great. Now, uh, I wanted to ask you about uh, your upcoming book here, uh, and you spent a considerable amount of time in Nigeria conducting research for for this book, A Great Upheaval, Women, Taxes, and Nationalist Politics, and you're going to have to help me, uh, Abukuda, Abeokuda, okay, mm -hmm. Abeokuta, Nigeria. Uh, what perspective about the struggles of women may readers, particularly women readers in America, gain from reading this book when it's published? A um, couple of things. So I mentioned before that my my, the, my master's essay in grad school was on Mrs. Ransom Kuti, and mm -hmm. part of my fascination with her actually developed from the fact that she led this women's tax revolt in 1947. So, you know, many people associate Stella with um, sort of a radical critique of, you know, contemporary um, sort of post-colonial Nigeria. Um, and a lot don't realize that Stella wasn't just a product of the politics of the 1960s and 70s, that he actually came from one of the most political families in Nigeria. And his both his mother and father were very involved in the nationalist movement. And his mother was a member of the dominant nationalist organization that formed roughly in 1944, the um, National Council of Nigeria and the Cameroon. Um, but she had locally established herself as someone who was willing to engage the colonial state on behalf of women in the town. And um, some of that came from her um, sort of social standing as a literate woman. Um, she was married to the um, – her husband was a minister, but he was also the headmaster of the secondary school in the town. So they were people of social standing. And um, so those who were not literate often went to people who were literate and would ask them to say write letters on their behalf to colonial officials. And Ransom Kuti established herself as one of the women more than willing to do that. She understood that as a part of, in a sense, her obligation as a member of this elite class. 
Um, but in the post-war period, um, the colonial state made plans to increase taxes on women. And um, okay. yeah, market women went to her to say, you know, please help us. We can't afford these tax increases. And so she um, actually established a working relationship with market women where as she advocated for them through the letters and petitions that she wrote, she also set up literacy classes. And so if anyone reads or has read um, Wole Shoyinka's, uh the first volume of his memoir, Ake, he describes this protest that I go into detail in, or you know, explore in detail in my book. But he was one of the students who was teaching market women you know, to read and write in English. Um, Stella was also involved in this effort. Um, and so she, out of that sort of relationship with market women, then formed this organization called the Abiyakuta Women's Union. And the women's union ultimately succeeded in bringing down the local, the traditional king in the town, the Alake. He was forced into exile. And they forced the colonial government to actually radically alter the structure of colonial rule. Because up until that point, the system in place was called the sole native authority system. And so the um, in those communities where you historically had centralized um, kingships, those kings sort of made a lateral transition into this colonial system. And so on the surface, it appeared as though nothing had changed, and the colonial officials, you know, defined themselves as advisors to the local kings. The reality is they pulled a lot of strings, and the local kings could only do so much because they still had to um, follow the rules and policies established by the colonial state. Um, and so when the king was forced to go into exile, they actually created um, a new council in the town in which all the members of the council were actually elected, and that was the first time election happened. Election was not a thing that you know colonial governments promoted. Um, and on top of that, for the first time, women were put on this particular council. Okay. So what you saw here were you know this very dynamic group of women, and it was a coalition of women, both elite women and market women working together to transform the very nature of colonial rule within that community. And they were partly acting on historical antecedents in the town. So this was a town in which women actually in the 19th century had more political power than they did under colonialism because you had women who held certain important titles. Um, they were on the um, sort of the civil government part um, or the councils that governed the town. Um, you actually had a woman, the highest titled woman, who was the representative, women's representative to the king. And all of, a lot of those titles actually disappeared under colonialism. And so they weren't arguing for women's political representation because it was a new thing. 
they were actually saying, we want to reclaim the political power and participation that we had actually lost under colonialism. And it's okay. really important to get that because the sense so often is that it's the colonial rulers who brought these ideas. And so, you know, the ideas of women being political participants, women being rulers or, you know, being in these sorts of positions um, must have come from women's movement in Europe. And I think it's really important that, um, you know, we understand that there, we actually better understand African history before we make such sort of blanket assumptions about what colonialism brought. Okay. Uh, that's, that's, that's really interesting. I wanted to ask you, too, uh, did this, this occur, this women's movement there in, in Africa, uh, did this, this uh, precede the advent of the women's movement in the United States? Well, it didn't precede it because, you know, the women's movement here, you can certainly trace um, it back into the 19th century and all. So okay. it, it's not it, um, it preceded them, but these ideas about women um, sort of sharing government, government or governing um, with men um, was not a European idea that came over. This actually used to be practiced before colonial rule. Um, but I also want to say that it's important to understand that it didn't, that we also have to be very specific to which African communities we're talking about and at what historical um, periods that we're talking about because there were societies in which women did not have um, important um, sort of shared political titles although women could still exercise political influence and authority, um, say women who were um, wives of kings or mothers of kings within uh, the complex of the palaces exercised tremendous power sometimes. In other societies, women's influence was felt through their position as um, mediums and, um, you know, through the spiritual powers that they held. Um, so it, it varied from different society, one society to another and at different times, too. So I'm, okay. what I'm discussing here is really specific to more general to Yoruba society, but then also very specific to Abiyakuta. Okay. Uh, uh, Judy, since the primary focus of your work has been women's social and economic history in Nigeria, and it's been really extensive, uh, you spent a lot of time there, is there a relationship between the struggles of women in Nigeria with the struggles of African-American women in America and women in general? Yes, there is. <laughs> um, okay. And... <laughs> And it comes together in a couple of different ways. Um, one is that certainly by the 1940s, when uh, Ransom Kuti and the Abiyakuta women are mobilizing, and in fact the success of their of the tax revolt in Abiyakuta led to the creation of a Nigerian women's union. Um, and they were actually more national than the nationalist organization at this time. Um, so it was 
it really just fired women's imagination. Um, but part of what they were battling at that under colonialism, then colonialism was this idea that women didn't belong in politics. And um, it was certainly an idea that was supported by Christianity. Um, missionaries um, certainly preached this idea about women only belonging in the home. And so these women weren't only challenging um, the colonial state, they were also challenging this ideological position, um, you know, this, this ideology around gender and where women belonged as opposed to where they didn't belong. Um, that was very much part of the fabric of European um, gender philosophy as well as American gender philosophy. So um, there was this shared argument then on both sides of the Atlantic that women belonged. In fact, Branson Kuti gave this speech that was really fascinating where she said, um, women belong in government partly because of their position in the household, because in the household they learn to be managers of resources and, um, and you know, the people within the household. Um, and she laid out this really beautiful analysis why all those things they did in the household actually makes them perfect for being in government. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and she also ascribed to this idea that most women um, particularly as mothers, um, ended up being selfless in their desire to care and protect for their children. And that selflessness was a quality that was necessary for people in government because far too many people in government were, in fact, quite selfish. Right, right. Um, and so it was a similar battle that women in this country had to fight too, this idea that women didn't only belong in the kitchen. Um, and then for black women here, it was further complicated by the, the racial dynamics of the U.S., where it's not just that women, because we know that for many of the women who were part of the suffragette women, um, they wanted white women out of the kitchen, but they were not at all welcoming of black men or black women within the political arena. Um, so this is where, again, the local dy dynamics really matter tremendously. Um, so women in Nigeria were not facing the issues of race in the same way. Okay. Now, uh, as we mentioned previously, we are celebrating Women's History Month, and this program tonight is part of our tribute to women in history. Now, since your work for most of your career has centered around women in Nigeria, what can you share with our listeners about the struggles of uh, uh, women uh, such as Susan B. Anthony and, and Alice Powell that most people are familiar with? Uh, who, who are your favorite women in the struggle for women's rights in America? Uh, Angela Davis. <laughs> okay. Great one. Great um, choice. One of my favorites, too. I so respect the work that she has done in, in really holding our feet to the fire of why it's important for men and women to understand gender. Um, and one of the things that I, one of the areas in which her work has moved now, which in a sense she was there a little ahead of all of us, 
or many of us at any rate, was the work around prison and what is happening to um, communities of color as you know, prisons have become the latest sort of development model for American communities. You know, it's a problem that rural development is predicated on having prisons. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think she has just really led the way in forcing us to think about how just the evolution of the prison industrial complex um, circumscribes, um, circumscribes democracy, the practice of democracy, how it circumscribes our understanding of our rights and benefits and responsibilities as citizens, and what the specific meanings of those things are for communities of color, black communities, black men, black women, um, the LGBT community. So I think that a very expansive analysis that she offers still, for me, puts her way ahead of many people. <laughs> so she is the person I need to invite to be on a panel for our Race oh, yeah. in America program in June. Okay. Yeah. So you're going to help me help me do that, right? <laughs> okay. Now, uh, okay, <laughs> I will. Now, uh, who are some of the women today that you feel are making an impact or are going to make an impact in history? Um, well, here, you know, I'm an academic, and so okay. a lot of the people whose work I pay attention to are other academics, and I just think we're in a moment now where some really incredible work is being produced um, by, you know, this upcoming generation of black women scholars that just doesn't get enough attention. Um, so in that group, I would think of Taya Miles, who um, her early work was on um, black I want to say black charities. I may not be completely accurate on that. Um, but who recently did a history of Detroit. Okay. And given what Detroit has been through in the past few decades, you know, it's an important city to pay attention to because it was both a reflection of um, the consequences of this sort of late-stage capitalism and the way in which resources were drawn out or pulled out of um, communities of color, and, and particularly in the urban areas where, where they lived. And now as those communities you know, became increasingly impoverished, and in the case of Detroit, bankrupted, then you get this influx now of capital, but in a way that's radically transforming these cities and radically transforming this place of African Americans in these cities. So, um, and again, as someone who pays attention to gender, um, I think Taya's work is really important. Um, Martha Jones, who's down at um, Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, has this new book on birthright citizenship, and it's such an important topic for us to pay attention to. I think people who somehow felt protected because First, our current president was, you know, claiming, um, you know, 
it was the Mexicans who were damaging this country. Um, and, you know, and then expanded to all these immigrants and mostly immigrants of color. So that's why we should be getting more Norwegians to, to come here. I think people who felt comfortable that he was attacking immigrants aren't also paying attention to efforts to undermine birthright citizenship in this country. And so those struggles to basically say that for the children of immigrants born in the U.S., that they don't, by definition now, count as Americans, just further opens the door to strip away at the rights of citizenship here. And I think we all should be very aware of how these debates unfold. Um, they are connected also, too, to the efforts to restrict voting rights in this country. And, you know, it's one of the things I was alluding to. People thought that after um, the Voting Rights Act that, okay, the black vote is safe. What we're learning now is that, oh, no, it's far from safe. And, you know, it's not just Facebook and the people using information from Facebook to um, weaponize, inform, um, you know, or affect voting patterns. It's all those policies, too, around, you know, having IDs, having more than the right IDs, having multiple types of IDs just to be able to go and vote. Um, also redistricting. Exactly. You know, and this stuff has been going on for a while. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not an American by birth. I was naturalized. I came here from Jamaica originally. But um, at a, when I lived in New Hampshire, after having voted in my district for several years, um, I was, during Bush too, I was asked to bring in, you know, not just the envelope showing my address or something that had my signature, I was told to bring in my national naturalization papers. Mm, boy, uh, that is truly a problem. Uh, yeah. Now, uh, mm-hmm. where, do you, where do you feel that women are today compared to 50 years ago or prior to World War II? Um, you know, it, it depends which women you're talking about. Um, okay. So even though the the meta narrative is that women really came out into the work workforce, um, you know, during World War II, and the men were off in battle, and you had Rosie the Riveter in the factories and all, um, that wasn't the case for African American women. You know, when were they in the workforce? Um, would be the better True. question. Ask. True. Um, <laughs> So it's it's what has changed, um, I think, particularly for, um, well, even white working class women did work, too. Um, I think sort of the biggest change that people tend to idealize when they're talking about women coming into the workforce is really the entrance or the increase in entrance of middle and upper class white women coming into the workforce. And some of that was actually predicated on them being able to create 
um, child care opportunities. And so that tremendous migration that we saw of West Indians to the U.S. after the change in the immigration laws in 1965 was actually part of what enabled all these women, um, upper-class white women, to go off into the workforce because you could get nannies from Trinidad and Jamaica um, or um, later on it would be more and more women from Central America. Um, but these were women who were then brought into the household to take care of the kids, while these are the women now who, who hadn't worked sort of historically then um, unless they really wanted to because you still had women, you know, who were working, um, and I'm thinking of the, um, the, like the women who were involved in the perfume industry and all of that stuff. So it's not that even wealthy women didn't work, um, but it wasn't expected of them. And so okay. with the war and the period after the war, then more and more spaces were made available for women more broadly. Um, but again, why it's so important to, you know, race and ethnicity matters that we also have to think about, well, which spaces or what spaces were made available for what women? So very few black women were able to work in corporate offices, certainly as, you know, account managers or things like that. It took a long time for black women to be able to even be saleswomen on the floor in retail establishments. So, you know, for people who just want to sort of paint these very broad pictures, um, they really don't allow us to get a deep understanding of where women came into the workforce, which women were allowed to come into certain spaces in the workforce. So even though you may have had eventually black women coming in as, you know, retail assistants, well, they came in at the bottom. and they never got to the top. They couldn't necessarily expect to rise through the ranks of managers or and then into the corporate office. So, you know, black women coming into these spaces didn't didn't necessarily begin to see major economic um, gains until a much later period. Okay. Uh, we're running short on time, and there's uh – a lot of other things I wanted to cover, but some things I really want to get to. Uh, one is is the fact that even though we uh, have made some progress, some more than others, there's still a lot of work to do. For example, uh, in talking about gender equity and gender equality, in an article uh, entitled Why We Need Gender Equity Now uh, in Forbes Woman Online from September 17, 2017, writer Katisha Roy states, Gender equality does not mean that women and men will become the same, but that women's and men's rights, responsibilities, and opportunities will not depend on whether they are born male or female. So there's still a very serious issue with gender equality and gender equity, which Ms. Roy defines gender equity as fairness of treatment for women and men according to their respective needs. Ms. Roy's article cites the World Economic Forum as rejecting that it will take 170 years to reach gender equity globally and uh, gender equality and 158 years in North America. So, Judy, do you feel that women will ever 
win this new battle and this new uh, women's rights movement for gender equity, gender equality? You know, I think it's, I think we're always, or we will make progress, but I think we also have to be prepared that with each step forward, there's also a backlash. And I think okay. we're at a moment right now where there is a backlash that happens, that is happening. Um, but we're also seeing this incredible amount of mobilization um, by women of all races. And I'm, I think what the young women are doing is really inspiring right now. And so I don't think that each backlash will, you know, push us all the way back. It may, you know, push us back a couple of steps, but we're not going back 50 steps or 50 feet. Um, so I, I expect that it will continue. It will take a long time before we see the sort of gender equity that um, uh, Roy is discussing in that piece. I, however, am troubled by the fact that she uses women in such um, an open-ended way. Um, so, you know, what's not at all included here in her discussion is any reference to the fact that um, gender equity is going to what gender equity looks like um, if, the, if racial and ethnic diversity is not a part of the formula of gender equity what we may end up seeing then is gender equity for white men and women. And okay. I don't think that's what we want to be in the future either. Okay, so very good. me, you know, there has to be that constant attention to really the intersection of race, class, and gender. Um, and it's, it's not enough to just say that um, we are going to get um, more you know, more European descendant women in certain positions. Because the other thing that that ends up doing, too, is then is, is creating its own sort of um, racial segmentation then within the labor force. So you'll see more women within, more white women than within corporate America. Um, but where there's still, where there's no attention to bringing in women of color and dealing with racism, um, then you, the black women who come into those spaces are going to be part of that whole revolving door syndrome. You get one in, she goes, oh, my God, I can't take it, <laughs> and, and leave for her sanity and good health. Um, and then they bring another one in and say, see, we're diverse, we're diverse. Um, <laughs> you really want to challenge that, uh, then there's just a lot of work that has to be done around race and gender and class and sexuality simultaneously. Okay. Uh, one final question. Uh, yeah. Although sexual harassment and uh, sexual abuse uh, assaults have been around for forever, uh, it seems that it's just being reported much, much more now than than in the past. So what do you think about the uh, increase or the increased reporting of sexual assault and, and uh, 
sexual harassment in, in the workplace? I think it's actually an important development um, because to really begin to address it, you, you, you have to name it, and you have to you know, convince everybody that someone tweaking your breast at work or tweaking your bottom is not appropriate, not just in the workplace, but anywhere. Um, and so it's, you have to begin to focus people's minds on this as an issue that has to be addressed, um, as well as put in place, you know, a system of checks for which there are consequences when people carry out these sort of actions. Um, but I don't think you're really going to get there until we have a much more intensive discussion about gender expectations, um, you know, how we define masculinity, how we define femininity. You know, a good girl is not someone who shuts up and doesn't report the guy who's abusing her. Right. What we need to do is reward the women who go who would report these things as being the good women. Um, in the same way, we should not be tolerant of young men who think that somehow drinking and then not accepting, you know, not allowing a woman to change her mind as to whether or not they're going to have sex at this point is a sufficient excuse. Um, you know, once somebody says no, everybody needs to stop. Yes. <laughs> it's, totally agree. Yeah, so it's it's one of those things. I know a lot of people feel then that if we talk about this, then what we end up doing is just vilifying men. Well, we have to remind people that um, there are ways or mechanisms within our culture that actually reinforces these ideas, but also remind people that not all men, in spite of all the reinforcement, not all men ascribe to those ways of thinking. And so it's to help elevate the voices of those men who, you know, are perfectly comfortable saying, no, that's not right. I, I saw what you were doing, and I am your age mate, your friend, and I would never agree and condone what you're doing. So once we begin to have those sorts of conversations, then I think we'll be able to not only, you know, sort of, celebrate the fact that women are reported, but we may be able to get to a point where we don't need the reporting because behaviors are different. Great. Great. Let's hope that we get there. Uh, Dr. Byfield, I tell you what, uh, we really thank you for sharing your knowledge and insight with us about women in history and especially the extensive uh, discussion we had on what what's, uh, occurred in the history and the development of women in Nigeria, your, your own work and extensive research that you've done, and your thoughts on how women may effectively confront the challenges they face today. On behalf of the CWR Talk Network, thank you so much for appearing tonight on Donnell Edwards' Viewpoints. Now, Dr. Byfield, please tell our mm -hmm. listeners who may like to contact you to learn more about uh -huh. your work and your books, how they may, may get in touch with you. Oh, um, email is the best thing. And um, my email address is jab63 
cornell.edu. Okay, very good. Uh, thank you. Thank you so, so much. much. I really enjoyed this. We did too. So you have a good evening. All now, right. We would Bye also, now. We would also like to uh, thank each of uh, you, our listeners in CWR Nation, for joining us for tonight's program. Uh, please join us again Monday night. That's March 26th at 6.30 p.m. Uh, Central Daylight Time as we continue our tribute to women in celebration of Women's History Month. Our special guest will be TEDx speaker, consultant, and safety advocate, Ms. Sabrina Asso. We will be discussing home violence, school bullying, sexual harassment, and mass shootings. So make plans to join us. And don't forget, we're also available now on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google+. And if you miss any episodes, you may listen to them through these services. That's it for tonight's program. As has become our custom, we leave you with our musical message for this week. In tribute to women everywhere and in honor of the phenomenal contributions of women in the world, we feel that our selection is very appropriate to recognize women. We hope you enjoy what has become an anthem for the modern women's movement. The message from the messenger, Miss Alicia Keys, and her blockbuster hit, Superwoman. Have a good night and a great week. And please join us again Monday night at 6.30 for our next program.
You're listening to the CWR Talk Network, America's voice for causes, issues, and life empowerment. This is the CWR Talk Network, hashtag one million strong. <laughs> 